Hi, everybody. It's Bean. Welcome to an all-new episode of Great Moments in Weed History. Right off the top, I want to offer a huge congratulations to the entire state of Minnesota because yesterday, your governor signed cannabis legalization into law. Gotta give a big shout out here to former Minnesota Governor Jesse Ventura. Yep, he's also a former pro wrestler and uh, that guy from the movie The Predator. Credit where credit's due because Jesse, the body, first championed ending the war on weed all the way back in the late 90s, and he's been pushing for this change in his home state ever since. But of course, the biggest gratitude of all goes out to all of the unsung grassroots activists in the North Star State who've been working to legalize it in Minnesota for the last 50 years, and to everyone out there all over the world who's working to legalize it right now, wherever you live. So, smoke them if you got them, Minnesota, because that's for sure a great moment in weed history. And I promise you, dear listener, that there's at least two more great moments coming up in this weeds episode. The first is the cannabis-fueled invention of the Koji Taco, signature dish of our guest, Chef Roy Choi. The first Koji Tacos hit the street back in 2008, and let me tell you, stoner cuisine has never been the same since. By taking the flavors he grew up with, working at his family's restaurant as part of a Korean immigrant community, and mating them with the street tacos of his native Los Angeles, Roy Choi not only created one of the stoniest culinary sensations of all time, he pretty much invented the modern gourmet food truck just so he could get those tacos out to the people. As Roy describes it, the scene that sprung up around his much sought-after Kogi Taco trucks was a bit like the Grateful Dead lot scene. The latest L.A. must-have is a $2 taco. We got 10 tacos, which is equal to $21.85. Sold from a difficult-to-find food truck called Kogi. The tacos and other specialties are the creation of Chef Roy Choi, who, along with two business partners, started Kogi last November. The food is a mix of Korean and Mexican cuisine, which is a hit with both food snobs and late-night partiers. Enjoy. But it's not just the food. There's also the chase. There are two Kogi trucks. One is named Verde, the other Roja. Finding either requires some work. Locations are posted online and updated on Twitter. There's even a rap song about Kogi. Kogi's getting huge. Next time in L.A., you know exactly what to do. Fifteen years later, the Kogi taco is still iconic. But Roy Choi is far from a one-hit wonder. He's actually one of the most respected and influential chefs in the world who just happens to be a lifelong, loud and proud stoner. He's twice been included in Time Magazine's list of the 100 most influential people in the world, but honestly, he seemed a lot more hyped about being honored on this humble weed podcast. So get ready for a funny and thoughtful conversation about cannabis, food, culture, and how to keep pot weird and out of the hands of the vulture capitalists of the world. Before we get into the episode, I want to say a huge thank you, as always, to each and everyone who supports us on 
Patreon. You help us tell these weed history stories and share them with the world, and I am eternally grateful. Please check out Great Moments in Weed History com to see all of the cool shit you're missing out on and maybe go a step further and put five on it to support this podcast or for a little more you can get a signed copy of my book how to smoke pop properly mail direct to your door that's all at great moments in weed history.com oh and by the way did i mention that roy choice got his own line of edibles out with sumo snacks if you sign up to support this show on Patreon, you can watch the video version of the podcast and you will see me right now munching on this deliciously oversized bag of Roy Choi's spicy, cheesy, ramen-flavored, cannabis-infused curls. That's a mouthful. I'm going to get a mouthful. Sorry to eat on mic. They're delicious. And they get you lit. Those spicy, Cheesy, ramen-flavored, cannabis-infused curls are going to take a little while to kick in, though. So I've also got my trusty packs heating up right now. It's filled with some incredible biodynamic flour gifted to me by friends of the podcast and the incredible growers at Radical Farms. Thank you, Blair and Daniel. All right, green light means go on my packs. I'm ready to taste the Terps, but what if you... Dear listener, are not yet lit, and you're like, whoa, Korean tacos, that sounds amazing, I love chefs, I love cannabis, but I am nowhere near lit enough to dig into this weeds episode. Don't stress, you know what to do, you just gotta hit pause, and you can use that time at your leisure to roll yourself a joint or to split a blunt or to pack a bong or to endabulate a dab or to grab yourself some tasty cannabis infused snacks or to go to packs.com use that promo code great moments get yourself a pax to puff on i can guarantee you one thing when you hit unpause and you are ready we'll be ready for another Great moment in weed history. Making music, rapping, podcasts, those are good high. Cooking in a professional kitchen, not so much. Oh, that's that's interesting. Let's 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 start there. So, in your culinary life, it seems like you have a distinction between uh, the conceptual world and the production world when when it comes to weed. Yeah, I mean, I wish I could be high all the time cooking. I try to make food that connects to everybody when they are high, and I know it does because my customer base usually comes in with red eyes. So I know that, uh, you know, I'm sticking the landing on the flavors. The dream is to be like a rapper in the booth and be like, just smoking fucking dro all day long and, and just spitting out like 16s, like nothing. But in the kitchen, there's just, it's like flying a plane or air traffic control. There's a lot going on, man. There's fire, there's knives, there's tight spaces. There's a lot of people, there's bumping. You're, you're making like potions out of things, basically. You're kind of like trapping and suspending 
moments of, of air and time. It's a lot to coordinate when you're stoned. <laughs> <laughs> so we try not to be high during cooking, but uh, definitely before and after. <laughs> there you go. Well, also in a commercial kitchen, you've got to serve all the beats you make. Uh, you know, whereas if you slip up in the recording studio, you just uh, erase it and start over, I would imagine. Absolutely. I guess the best example would be um, if you were like a conductor and then you got like this fucking complicated Beethoven piece that you got to like, like three hours, like orchestrate. And there's like a huge crowd. And then like, if you're just blazed out of your mind, like, you kind of don't know if you are executing it all the way. I don't know. Maybe there are other cooks that are able to do it. I just, I, I've learned from experience that um, I'm not at my best when I'm high, when I'm cooking. So there's that. And and how how might that be or not be different if you were just, say, home making yourself a late night snack or you had a few friends over? Oh, yeah, that's different because then... You can you can literally make a lot of mistakes. You know, you can spill things. Uh, you laugh about it. You can keep adding stuff because you know, in a professional kitchen, there are there are recipes and techniques and processes and methods. There's something called consistency, right? Like they're paying guests when you're cooking with friends at home in your apartments barefoot. You know, you haven't set really expectations. It's like a road trip. Right. Like you kind of like just go where it takes you. I read and, and really loved and appreciated your, your book, L.A. Sun. And, and, and it was really looking at your life story through the prism of food uh, from growing up up to your professional experience. I'd love to kind of take that same journey with you uh, through the prism of cannabis. So I'm wondering when did cannabis, uh, you know, weed first enter your life and your consciousness? 13 years old, I probably started smoking weed. Yeah, I mean, I, not probably, I know. <laughs> I, I, I was there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, it was 13, you know, brown says sweets, lots of seeds, lots of stems, you know, rolled it up in a zigzag, got high. I liked it. I liked it from the very beginning. You know, I know I hear a lot of people that say they didn't like their first high or it didn't affect them or they got a headache or whatever. For me, it was... The exact opposite. I fucking loved it, man. It was everything I was searching for, for for the first 13 years of my life. I was listening to a lot of fucking uh death metal. I was wearing like old army fatigues. I was a part of the, I was a part of this actual like stupid little like standby me gang called USA, <laughs> the uh United Stoners Association. We used to wear these uh army fatigues that we cut the sleeves off. Uh, like the fucking outsiders, you know, like we cut the sleeves off and then we write USA on the back, United Stoners Association with big pot leaves on them, you know. Yeah, I was like River Phoenix at 13 and, and stand by me when we were just smoking this brown ass ass weed. It was the best. It was the best. That is some very relatable content for uh, yeah, my, for myself and, <laughs> and for our, our our listeners. Maybe some of the younger listeners don't know that bra- uh, brown weed once existed and was ubiquitous. But uh, I think we oh, all yeah. Well, just to give the the new younger listeners an understanding, like the weed right now is just so strong, you know, and it's just so amazing. Back then, you had to smoke like an eighth to get high. Maybe not. That's exaggerating, but you'd you'd have to smoke a dime or at least a whole nickel to get high i don't even know if people know what a nickel or a dime is anymore but you had to hold you had to smoke like 
like a Ziploc bag. You had like if uh, if you took like an inch on the bottom and went straight across on a Ziploc bag, you had to smoke that whole thing. But it was great. What made it great because the weed was so bad. When you found good weed, it made things like super special. It's like going into a theater that had THX or something. Like it, it just like elevated everything. So when you found skunk, or when you found Thai stick, or when you found like chronic or something like that, you know, or purple purple hair, it was like uncovering something like an archaeologist but yeah yeah that's when i first started getting high and you know the munchies kicked in right away like I, it, you know everything tasted different started getting into like a lifelong journey of milkshakes because nothing like a like a milkshake when you're high oh yeah well let's zero in on your food journey uh you know as a younger person your 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 family ran a restaurant but you also really wrote beautifully about the the diversity of food in Los Angeles at that time from different cultures. A lot has been written now about the LA food scene, but you really go back decades before that and show that it was it was all happening. So when did you really lock into that idea that it doesn't just make you, you know, and there's science for this, it doesn't just make you more hungry. It does enhance your appreciation of of flavors and their intensity. And I'm wondering if, if there's a specific meal or or experience that solidified that for you. Absolutely. And thank you for saying that, because that's something I've been arguing for a very long time, is that your taste buds, something blossoms when you get high, right? You know, I'm sure you know all the scientific data for that, but I, I know for a fact that it happens to me, like everything becomes stereo, all the taste buds turn into stereo. And Thank you for bringing that up about L.A. Sun and about L.A., the food of L.A., because it was always here. It was the L.A. hamburger stands and Thai food. You know, those two things were my entry point into eating stones, going and getting like a, a burger, chili fries and like a banana milkshake with real bananas in there or like a cherry, cherry Coke or root beer float. They were like an old corduroy sofa in my mouth, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know? like they were so fucking comfortable. Like it, it was like sinking in. Oh man, it was so good. It was just the best, you know? And it, it just like, just every time I would eat those things, it would just get deeper and deeper into that comfort level of that old couch. And then Thai food, you know, when I was stoned, I just started experiencing Thai food at about 14, 15 years old. That was just crazy. Like, I would just get so blazed, like just fucking like 12 bong hit blazed and just stumble into a Thai restaurant and order like Pad Thai and Pad Siu and some Tom Yum and Thai iced tea and a coconut sticky rice. And I would just be like, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> it was a pinball machine in my mouth. You know, I was just like, wow, this is sweet and spicy and savory and like, there's fish sauce and there's chilies and chili pods and lemongrass. And there's all these things bouncing around. It was, um, it was the best. And what was great about those is that it felt like you were again, like in your own little insular bubble, like you were just eating a lot of times I'd be eating alone or with just one, one friend that I'd gotten high with. And we would just, it would just, we would just be there for that moment, you know, that hour just eating nowhere to go nothing to do that laid the foundation for everything that i do and everything that i am and all the food that i cook i try to i try to create those experiences for for everybody now because i know how special those experiences were for me and then as you grow older in life you know 
the world gets more you know stressful and things become more you know important and you lose the surroundings of life and society pull you further and further away from you know those moments that are really special because life tricks you into thinking that those things aren't as valuable as you grow older i don't believe that you know i think those are some of the most valuable moments when you have nothing to do and nowhere to go and you're just immersed in the moment and you're just appreciating every single bite you're feeling it and you're tasting every single bite and so i try to i try to create those environments um, in my restaurants and my you know in the trucks and everything like that your formative weed years uh i, I believe are the, are the 1980s and that's a very interesting time you know we had a kind of a cultural acceptance of of weed in the 70s that didn't really change the law uh and then now we're of course you know entering and moving into this era of legalization but at the time as a younger person did it feel like a rebellious act did it feel like it put you at odds with the mainstream of the culture and and what of that has stuck with you now i never saw it as a rebellious act i i relished in the fact that nobody knew and that that i could find other stoners like a secret code like an invisible code i knew that we were on the fringe or that we were a subculture, you know, that there were others out there like me, but not everyone was like me. I traveled through the world stoned almost every day. I've been stoned almost every day of my life since 13 years old. Uh, there was a time where I took a little break when I worked for like a, a corporate environment, a hotel, um, when I tried to like be a grown up for about 10 years between like 98 to like 2008. There was like 10 years or so where I kind of stopped smoking weed um, because like they were doing drug testing and I'm no good at like fucking lying and, you know, and I don't know how to do the piss test like solution thing. And I always mess up. And so I, I just decided to stop for a while. But other than that little gap of, but there are moments in there where I would smoke because I knew the test was coming like six months later. I'd smoke, but like pretty much since 13, I've been stoned every day and um, go everywhere, everywhere I go, I'd be stoned. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but basically like, I do that in many environments, I'd be the only one stoned. Not really rebellion, but it was an act of defiance in the sense that I just felt like I didn't fit in. You know, this is the thing that, you know, gave me enough strength to, to fit in and just see the world differently and like have a sense of humor about stuff. I like being stoned at places where people are like really fucking stressed out, like TSA, <laughs> you know? Like, like at the airport, like I love being stoned at the airport because everyone is just so stressed. And for me, like if it takes an extra five minutes, it doesn't really matter. You know, like I'm like, it's all good because I went through life that way. It was like being in a, in a forest or something. Like I was searching for like others, you know, that were stoned and I could feel it. I could, I could either feel it through the vibration or I could see it in their eyes or you could smell it or whatever. And um, yeah, man, it was cool. Like. But back then we had to do like now you could like you you could reek like weed and no one cares right like back then we had like these like little things social cues that we still had to kind of not adhere to I mean I was wearing a, a, a army fatigue that said United Stoners Association <laughs> on my back but, maybe maybe but, a uh, little maybe a little rebellion <laughs> a little rebellion but but what was weird is. Like we would do these things where like we would have long hair and wear these like army fatigues that say United States, but then we would like put cologne on and wash our hair and put visine in our eyes, you know, thinking that no one would notice. Those are little things that 
in the 90s and late 80s and whatever before social acceptance of weed that we had to uh we thought we were we were being sly by doing you know? yeah I love, I love what they call code switching code switching yeah like and it was it was funny that in our mind now that i talked about it with you it's funny that in our minds that we would think that by putting a drop of visine in our eyes and putting like a spray of cologne but everything about everything the other 99% of our aura basically just screamed this guy is stoned out of his fucking mind from our shoes and our untied laces to our jeans and our jackets and just our smile, our perpetual smile. Like, like we, we thought that these two little things are going to like code switch us. Whereas <laughs> everyone probably, you know, it, it made no difference. Well, the other, the other, the other word that you mentioned that really leapt out at me was um, the idea of subcultures. Cause I think the thing about weed as a subculture is it functions that way in and of itself, but it can often be the access point to other subcultures that you you may be further away from in your own cultural upbringing. You were, you know, of course, raised in this uh, Korean immigrant community in Los Angeles, but you are in a lowrider club. You are going to culinary school. We're not here to talk about my experience, but I can think of so many times that weed was the conduit into places and scenes and cultures and people I never would have otherwise met or 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 been accepted into is is that is that in line with your experience absolutely you know I moved so many times like I ended up in a white high school but I grew up in, in you know in a, in a in a black and Latino elementary school I moved in and out I was I never really hung around Asians until I was in college um, so I've been around like so many different cultures and different environments um, my parents, hopscotched from you know rich to poor bankrupt to ball in like in this you know every other year I, I i've ricocheted back and forth between so many different not only cultural but socio-economic environments and having to weave through all that especially at a young age trying to figure things out and going through puberty and all those things at that same time you know and social anxiety and you know weed allowed me to um as, as I'm thinking about your question, it allowed me to be American. It, it showed me how to be American, to be honest, you know, because I come from an immigrant family, you know, in immigrant families, we lead double lives. We have our life at home where English is not the first language. Usually everything, all of the tiny little fabrics of life within your home have nothing to do with the America you see outside those doors. Every day you walk outside of your door, you have to figure out like, how the hell am I going to like, figure this out and um there's no rule book your you know the learnings that you get at home they don't they have no clue they're figuring life out on the tv they're, they're figuring out how to be american through watching sitcoms and you're like you know so there's no there's no playbook so you got to figure out so for me we showed me how to be american and that sounds really funny but you know it's true you know because by getting high meeting other stoners being high in environments where I wouldn't know how to interact or how to how to maneuver, especially at those young ages. It gave me it gave me an ability to figure it out. And it gave me a bit of like a floating mechanism to be able to float through these environments, to find humor, to make people laugh, to connect. So, yeah, for sure. I think without it, I would have been a totally different person. I don't know who I would have ended up becoming. It not only gave me the tools to maneuver and figure out how to be American or 
adapt to these different cultures or connect with all these different people growing up. But it also laid the foundation for um, who I would eventually become as a professional chef and as a as someone now who um, is able to feed you know thousands and thousands of people every day and give give them exactly what they need in that moment in life. Uh, yeah, I I often wonder where my weedless life would have taken me, and uh, I, I always say, you know, referring to myself, weed is not the cure for being an asshole, but it it sure helped me. Uh, so uh. that's a great saying, man. I you know I I I sometimes think about that exact thing of like, what if I had become a fucking dick in life? That's the worst thing I I could have ever imagined. I always try to measure myself on my 16 year old self, like, cause I hated fucking adults when I was 16, you know, they're all fucking corny and, but there were some cool old, older people, you know? And like, I try to look at myself, like what would my 16 year old self think of me? You know? And I feel like I would pass the test now because of weed. Yeah. I like what you said, man. Like <laughs> I think weed helped me not become the asshole that I, my multiverse self could have been, you know? Yeah, we don't. That's one thing I think the plant doesn't always get credit for. But uh, yeah, it, re, it it negates the assholeness in fucking humans, you know. Yeah, w- Willie Nelson's line is "Why do you smoke so much pot? Uh, it keeps the rage down." So I always like that one too. I wish politicians would get high more, man. Global leaders, it's so fucking ridiculous, man. Religious and global leaders, like they should get high more. Like we would have a better Earth. If people just got high more, I'm not even saying that as a joke. You know, I cultivate communities of thousands of people on the street eating together. 40, 50% of them are high eating burritos in parking lots. And to me, it's a vision of what the world could be. Yeah, I I worked on, uh, in another capacity. I worked on a lot of throwing weed events, big weed events that would draw twenty thousand people. You know, really diverse events culturally. The ticket prices weren't high. It wasn't some exclusive world. Uh, yeah, and it was the chillest. You know, shit came up every once in a while. Hey, don't don't store fifty thousand dollars worth of hash in your in your trunk of your car in a parking lot because it might get ripped off. But we had no fights. We had no aggro shit, you know. And this yeah. is over, you know, 10 years doing five events a year for a long time. Um, I, I wanted to get uh, uh-huh. another another study that's out there that uh, relates to weed and that I think relates to your journey in, in, in weed and food is the idea of what's called hyperpriming is the the mind's ability to take two seemingly unconnected ideas and connect them and it's been proven and shown that cannabis enhances that ability one example would be uh jazz musicians who are improvising and why there's uh such a tradition of smoking weed in in jazz music and i mm. see that as well in food and in this idea of stoner cuisine and perhaps uh quite famously in the idea to combine the taco idiom <laughs> and mm-hmm. and the Korean food that that you grew up with do you do you see that does that ring true for you absolutely now you got some good good questions bro. <laughs> thanks cooking is a lot like the jazz musicians of those days that you refer to because in these social constructs of life we have these these invisible rules and laws and 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 walls that we set up 
and separations and divides that we set up amongst ourselves. And then we start to like police ourselves over these things like socially. But what the weed allows you to do is, you know, just it's a safe space to just like, it's like writing in a diary, you just say whatever you want, right? Like it allows you to like blow those social construct and invisible walls away just for that moment in time. It allows you just play with it all. And whether it's the jazz musicians of the 50s playing with those sounds and just like reaching and searching and blending those sounds together, or for us as cooks, having those moments to where we're just like combining flavors together. And we're not trying to be disrespectful. We're not trying to adhere to authenticity. We're not trying to encyclopedia brown something into like, okay, this is supposed to be like that or this. We're just like, just vibing. That's all because of weed, you know, that that allows us to take ourselves out of our frontal mind and take us out of like, okay, well, we, we we're supposed to do this or that, or you can't do this or this. And um, everything is free, you know? And then, so then all of a sudden, soy sauce meets lime juice, garlic meets lemongrass, lemongrass meets ancho chili paste. All these things start swirling together. In most cases, those things are just that moment in time. And then you go back to real life. But if you're lucky out of that, that kind of dream sequence, something comes out of it. It's almost like you're pulling something from this parallel universe into this universe. And and if you're lucky, it kind of like sneaks its way through before the door closes. And then you end up with the Kogi Taka. It's, it's not all the time that that happens, but sometimes it does. Something makes it through. It, 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 gets past the security guard of, of, of this life, <laughs> you know, and it sneaks in and makes it into the concert and it's there, you know, and that's what, that's what the Kogi Taco is. You know, we're not, we don't have a ticket to this concert, but we made it in and we're there in, in, you know, in the, in the mosh pit in the front row and it's having a fucking blast. You know, that's really special, man. And that's a, that's a John Coltrane track or the Thelonious Monk track, you know, that's a Kogi Taco. That's all those things, you know, yeah, this is the uh, Joseph Campbell hero's journey. You, you you enter the realm of adventure. You combine these elements, and you're able to bring it back uh, to everyone else. Absolutely, we're, we're we're great moments in weed history. That's our uh-huh. show. I have my big stamp here that says "Great Moments in Weed History." I am absolutely authenticating the creation of the Kogi Taco as as such as a great moment in weed history for yourself and for every wow. countless person who has enjoyed one in that state or otherwise. Um, wow, I didn't know we were going to get the Rockefeller <laughs> chain on this podcast. Wow, that's amazing, bro! Like. That's that's the biggest like honor ever because we are a product of the history of weed, man. The Kogi Taco wouldn't exist without it. There would be it wouldn't it wouldn't continue without stoners eating it. It is like truly a part of the culture. And so that that means so much, man. Thank you. Oh, well 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 earned. Um so maybe tell me a little bit about how you uh came to have your own line of of edibles so the first phase of it is i wanted to create a shareable experience back because in this evolution of of edibles and how far things have gone the one thing that i noticed was it was also bringing us away from the communal sharing of getting high together and so what was happening was we were we were having like these individual edibles and we were all meeting each other on different levels of high and they were all done privately so everyone 
was just dropping their own little gummy on their own and meeting each other at different moments of their high. And we weren't sharing the experience together. Like we talked about at the beginning of the podcast where we would get high together and go to the restaurant together and be, be high together and eating the same food together. And so this bag is a shareable bag. When we first started creating it, I was just thinking about the old school joint that you're passing around. So then this bag can feed 10 people and you pass it around, you all eat it together. Uh, then I started thinking about like flavor. What would make someone like just be like, oh shit, or like laugh or be completely surprised? Because in this world of so much information, we have lost a little bit of our surprise factor. And that's what was so beautiful. Like back in the day was, and not just in weed, there was a surprise element and a special element to things because you had to search for things. You had to like journey. Every, every day was like, we started this podcast, like every day was like, stand by me, let's go see a dead body. And now it's just like, there's just, you know, we're so like numb to everything. It's rare that things surprise us anymore. I just wanted to go back to where when someone ate like a handful of these chips, like they would just stop for a second and be like, whoa, what is going on here? And that's why the first flavor was spaghetti and meatballs, spaghetti and meatballs and uh, spicy, cheesy ramen, because it just seems silly that there's a bag of chips that tastes like spaghetti and meatballs. It just seems like the most stoner thing ever, right? And I wanted it to be like a dog whistle to other stoners. Like when they saw it, they'll be like, oh, there's something going on here. Like they understand me. And then like when they opened it, there would be a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Like when they ate it, they'd be like, wait a second, this really does taste like a bowl of spaghetti and meatballs. What's going on here? And then two hours later, they would you know, be totally happy. And then the spicy, cheesy ramen, there's not much more satisfying than a bowl of instant ramen like when you're high so i was thinking of that and how can we take that whole experience and put it into a chip i think we did it to be honest yeah i, I really loved them and you know i was yeah. just uh, uh they were not entered uh but uh i think because they were too new but i was just a judge at a the Emerald Cup edibles contest. Uh, oh. So, you know, and, and it's it's a lot of great work being done. Like, I, I you know, I, I love what people are doing, but it is it is a lot of gummies and it is a lot of things that just sort of like the fun is not there. And I, and there's, there's reasons why. Um, but what came through is obviously that's something very personal to you, you know, even connecting to your life story. It's a fun concept. It's something that yeah. makes you uh, lean in towards it. And I think the shareability is is really important, too. I, I, I'm concerned about it. I, I, you know, people coming into this culture and seeing it as, you know, simply a supplement that you might take, which is great, particularly if it's giving you medicinal yeah. benefits. But we have so much, you know, it's the difference between listening to, you know, an album under the covers at home with headphones on that can be great. But if you never get to the concert, you're never really going to experience wow. Man, this you, culture. You, you, you're so smart. You're so smart. <laughs> like <laughs> that, that, uh, what you just said about the supplement thing is something I never I really thought about. I may have thought about it briefly, but it is getting to a point where if no one, if someone's entering our culture for the first time or is just seeing it for the first time, it could look like from the outside that it is just a pill that you drop, you know, or just a, a, a gummy that you eat and it's just a supplement. There's nothing wrong with it. Those are fun moments, but 
it it does seem like it's taking this like just really like wildly grown culture and putting it into this small little supplemental pill, which is not really what it is. And as I've seen the the gummy market grow, it seems as though it's getting even more esoteric in that way. Everything is becoming like the end of a French meal. I want things to be like a drippy cheeseburger, you know, like I want a little bit of fun and rock and roll. And, and again, this is no shade on because because I enjoy the gummies as much as anyone else. But it seems like things are being, being consolidated into one form. And that's the last thing I think cannabis culture should be. I think it should be as wild and as as unkept and and rough around the edges as possible yeah absolutely and you know you 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 likened there was a, a kind of a seminal uh new york times article in 2010 chefs using marijuana create new kitchen culture you you were you were quoted a few times and one of the quotes was you were likening the culture around weed and food to the way the grateful dead culture uh, was of course about music, but it was about so much more. I just love that idea, and 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 I think what's happening is with cannabis now intersecting with capitalism and and and, and institutional capitalism and big yeah. uh, market capped companies coming in. There's this tendency to widgetize everything. When you went to the Grateful Dead parking lot back in the day, the edibles were goo balls and and uh you know burritos with chopped up weed in them and some of them were not so good and some of them were way too strong yes but it was vibrant and and full of life it was full of life i forgot i did that article um but yes that's what i try to create in the parking lot of a kogi truck every every day whether it's with with weed or not you know it's about it's about a philosophy and, and a and a point of view and a lifestyle. And yeah, there's just something about things being, you know, made by humans and not widgetized. The imperfection of stuff, of life, everything is so perfect now. That is something that I'm yearning for again in a weird way. And not in a way of like I'm sitting in an old lawn chair grumbling about the present and trying to wax poetic about how great it used to be. Um, I, try to, I try to never be that old guy. I, I just feel like we're losing. A lot of our just our wild nature. If we lose it, there's something bigger that we're going to lose. It may be silly to think that keeping some of that wild nature in in an edible is 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 a keyhole to holding on to it for humanity. But that's the way I look at things. In in your show, broken bread you looked in on not just the fun and culinary and social aspects but also the social justice aspects of cannabis how does the experience of having been criminalized uh, most of your life for something that you did every day as you said and that you know informed your life journey in positive ways how has that stuck with you in that show i was wrestling with the corporatization and legalization and acceptance of, of weed and new people entering it and also the the cosmopolitan nature of how it's becoming and the marketing and how everyone it's a gold mine for everyone but I also had to bring up the point of like a lot of the people that I grew up around and that the places that I come from and the people that I still hang out with on a daily basis and mainly marginalized communities and, and people of color don't get the same playbook 
is maybe white folk, to be honest. You know what I'm saying? Like in this evolution of wheat culture and, and it becoming a very, you know, big revenue source for, for life, for the world, uh, we can't leave people behind. This is an opportunity for us to right some, a lot of the wrongs that have happened. And if we're going to, if we truly are going to legalize weed, we have to, we have to do it in the spirit of what weed is and take care of everybody and have humility and, and humor in everything that we do and, and be considerate and care for others. Because I think those are the things that cannabis allows us humans to tap into is it allows us to be a little more sensitive, a little more caring and kind and um, understanding and not be the asshole. And what, what I was trying to argue in the show is like, we can't be assholes anymore, as we talked about earlier in the podcast. And if, if, if weed is going to become this thing that we are all going to accept, we have to accept the fact that it removes that asshole part of who we are. And so we have to go back to the old asshole selves of who we were and correct those things. I just wanted to make sure that we didn't forget that in this, this whole new gold rush of legalization, that there were a lot of people that had to pay the price unfairly um, for this medicinal natural plant. Yeah, absolutely. One thing we talk about a lot on this show is we are pushing not just to legalize cannabis, but how are we going to legalize cannabis? And if we, the people listening to this show, our community don't get directly involved in that, it is going to be left to the assholes to write the rules and to the people. It's going to be left to the venture capitalists and bankers and corporate CEOs to decide exactly what you're talking about. And that's not fair. It's like what happens in the record industry. What's happening right now, you know, with the writer strike and, and streamers, you know, like if you leave it to the hands of the only the people that are worried about the bottom line and maximizing profits, it doesn't mean that those people have to disappear. But in life, the life is a recipe. As a cook, I look at the world as a recipe. If you only have sugar, you know, or salt, that's not a recipe, right? And so if you only leave it in the hands of, of the financial sector, you know, it's not going to be what we as the, the people of this culture believe in. As we like to say here, cannabis should transform capitalism, not the other way around. Uh, and I, I wow, feel, that, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> feel the kindred yeah. spirit on that. I would love to leave off with you. This is a fascinating discussion and I could uh, uh, continue indefinitely with you, I, I feel, uh, other than we do need to get lit together at some point. But uh, yeah, what would be, you know, I, I put my stamp on a great moment in weed history from your life of kind of a iconic and and obvious one from the outside we say great moments in weed history happen to everyone uh what's what's a moment in your weed history that really stands out for you oh there's so many but i would say i would say there's this one where we were playing around with edibles for kogi and this is early in the kogi days probably around 2010 we had no idea what we were doing. Us as cooks, we don't really measure. I think I need to preface the story with that. Like we, <laughs> <laughs> we grab butter by the handful. We season salt with like four fingers. Yeah, you know, like we don't really measure. We cook by feel, and and so we were making. We have a tres leches cake, 
in our menu. And it's this beautiful, like, double fudge chocolate cake with a butterscotch crunch topping and this uh, tapioca kind of boba cream filling. And it's layered with three three different milks, condensed milk and beautiful, like, and it's shaped like a cupcake, but it eats like a big slice of chocolate cake. And it's a really, it's a really great dessert. It's been with us since almost day one. And our pastry chef, Beth, and I, we created it and it's just this beautiful thing. And so like we decided to, uh, we came across like um, two huge uh, uh, mason jars of butter, of cannabis butter. And we decided to try to make cakes with it. These two like big mason jars of butter probably could have made like 240 little cupcakes, but we made 24 cupcakes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> out, of, out of these two basic jars of butter if i was a finance guy i'd say you 10x'd it <laughs> i 10 would it yes exactly where cannabis informs commerce and so what we did was like we just cooked like we normally cook like we would use that amount of butter in, in the in the batter but we didn't know it was that concentrated so in any, any case it was supposed to probably be for about 240 cakes we made 24 cakes so each cake little cake the size of a cupcake had over an ounce in it probably all of our team we we ate it and then we went out and we were working that day we went out in the truck it hit us right when we opened the doors and started like service and um, we were in venice beach an amazing beautiful day but everything started hitting us really hard we basically gave all our food away for free and to me that was the essential moment in weed history for Kogi because it it continued to define what we're about who we're about we we were so stoned we couldn't even count the change uh so that's why we didn't accept money because we didn't know how to give money back to people. <laughs> we didn't know how to give change back to people this was before 2010 so not everything was like you know tap and go people were still carrying cash a lot and so we just made the decision like you know, let's just feed everybody. We don't, we can't count the change. Keep your money. Let's just all be in this moment together. And it kind of went viral on social media and like more people started showing up and we just spent the whole day there. We were supposed to leave, but we couldn't drive. So we just spent the whole day there. This day that was supposed to have structure. We stayed in Venice all day long on a beautiful Saturday afternoon, serving people for free not knowing how to count the stupid thing we call money. And we just took away all of the the safety belts and guardrails of life. And we just like were human together at a very pivotal time in Kogi because that was two years into Kogi. We were growing. Investors started looking at us. We were doing a lot of like interviews at that time with venture capitalists and banks of how to grow Kogi. Some of those interested bankers came out that day to, you know, analyze our business. And, <laughs> you, know, you, you know what I mean? Like, like we were at that, we were at the, cause you know, Kogi was very popular at that time. And we were at that juncture where everyone, you know, every suit comes to you says, Oh, you should have a thousand of these. Oh, uh, you should be growing by, you know, you should be 10 X. Like you said, 10 X this, the, you know, like blah, 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 blah. What's your ROI and this and that. And everyone's like telling us what we need to be and what we need to do. And you're supposed to be the biggest Chipotle in the world and all that stuff. And so we were right in the thick of those discussions. And we were just hearing them out because we're just like, all right, whatever, you know, like. And then I think I invited them out that day to Venice because it's the perfect environment for them to see 
everything, the whole nature of what Kogi is about. But it just so happened that day we ate these cakes and then <laughs> we're giving away food for free. We had a, we had a change jar that was like dumped on the ground. We're like, yeah, if you want to leave money, just leave money there and take whatever you think is, you know, your change. And, and then all these bankers are showing up and, I, I see that as a great moment in history because it forever solidified what Kogi represented and who we would become and how we continue to this day. We didn't take the venture capital money. We didn't go down that route of Chipotle. We didn't become the widget 10X thing. We continued to become the Grateful Dead parking lot. And I don't care what people think of our decisions. That's who we became. And I'm, I'm very proud of that. I've I've got my stamp out again, and I'm stamping. (laughs) Great moment in weed history on that. I think that uh, Jerry (laughs) Garcia, in the form of a cloud, was likely uh, smiling down on you uh, as as, as a celestial (laughs) representative of of weed culture. I'm sure everyone who who was there uh, enjoyed a special experience. And 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 I do think too, you know, we talked on the on the micro level, on the personal level about the multiverse people we might have become without weed. And I think what you described for me is, you know, uh, we've denied weed for so long to so many people on this planet. And I do think some of the just nightmarishness of the world is a result of that. And it feels like you created and your team and those delicious cakes uh, created a vision of just for a moment what the world could be like if we, you know, were on a different path and and, and hopefully a path that we can get back to uh, a path that I think weed for, for many of us helps us find in ourselves. So thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you so much for talking with me, for everything you do, for food and for weed and for media and for culture. And uh, thanks for sharing a, a great moment in weed history with me. Thank you, man. This was amazing. All right. Hopefully we get to light it up one day. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. And that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.